So there was a time when everyone in our society knew these laws. They form the basis for our own judicial system and they are the foundation upon which we have built so much of what we now take for granted in our society. I have to wonder, though, how well they're known these days. Because these are the laws that formed the people of Israel. And this is important because we need to hold in mind that the people who fled Pharaoh's Egypt, they came out of the Exodus, the thing we'll be celebrating at the Passover in a couple of weeks, these people were a mixed company, the Bible tells us. In Exodus chapter 12, now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot, aside from the children, a mixed multitude also went up with them, along with flocks and herds and a large number of livestock. So they were not unified by one ethnic identity anymore. They were entering a land none of them had ever lived in. So geography wasn't a unifier either. Essentially, they were a disparate mob of people that decided to leave Egypt altogether at the same time. And what was going to hold this group of people together as a cohesive unit? And so the people received the Ten Commandments. They made a promise to respond by living according to these Ten Principles. And if you consider all the areas of life covered in these Ten Commandments and all the Levitical laws and the Deuteronomical restatement of the law, in fact, all the laws held in the first five books of Moses, the Torah, it seems like a lot of laws if you read through them all. Yet they cover a relatively small amount of life, which is interesting. Certainly they had prohibitions about what you were not allowed to eat, but except for very special occasions, it never told you what you had to eat. There's just certain things not to eat, for example. And there was prohibitions about doing certain things on the Sabbath, like it said you had to cease from your work and to rest, but it didn't tell you how to cease from your work and how to rest, and it said nothing at all about what you had to do on the other six days. These laws were delightfully imprecise. They were open to wide interpretation, and even so they became the central cultural unifier of the people of Israel. These laws formed them as a people. They were a people who treated each other according to these ways. That's who they were. And it's also good to remember that the laws were received well before the establishment of the monarchy. That means that even the sovereign of the nation held that position of the monarch under these laws. Hence the expression, no one is above the law. Have you heard that? I sometimes get uh, trapped by this myself because in our house we have some rules which I've been instrumental in formulating and uh, keeping in force. And we have rules around the use of devices, for example, like where you can use them, where you can't use them, how long you can use them, that sort of thing. Um, together with Joe, we worked it all out. We talked to the girls about it and we all agreed, yep, that's how we're going to do it. But if I reach for my phone in contravention to these rules, Pay will immediately tell me that I am breaking the rule. And everything inside me wants to say, yes, but I'm the boss. <laughs> Like, I made the rule up, I'm the enforcer, I don't need to obey the rule, I am the rule. And you know that in a lot of cultures that's the way governments and people 
kind of function at those high levels of authority. And I guess King David must have thought something like that when he helped himself to another man's wife. He wasn't ignorant of the law. He knew it full well. He just simply felt it didn't apply to him in that instance. And then the prophet Nathaniel artfully came and made it clear to David that the law did apply to him. It applied to all the people. It was what formed them and held them together as a people. They were the people who behaved with each other in these ways. And I recently came to see something about these Ten Commandments that I've never realised before, and that is that they are designed to help the people avoid rivalry, because rivalry is one thing that will rip a community apart. It opens with the claim of God, after the identifying historical events of deliverance, to announce that God is to have no rivals. God has no rivals at all. And this is a a remarkable thing, even though it might sound pretty commonplace to our ears. No one in the day that this law was first given believed there was only one God without rival. No one believed that. There were multiple local deities, spirit forces that watched over particular territories and particular activities, everything from fertility to uh, your crops and having babies and all sorts of things. They were always competing for dominance, a bit of a mirror of the human struggle in many respects, and that might be a clue to us where they came from. But the notion of being faithful to a singular God was not only unheard of, it was downright risky. What if you found yourself in the territory ruled by a competing deity where another deity had authority? What what do you do then? Or what if you wanted to do something or needed to do something that was a known area of speciality for a particular deity? Wouldn't you call on that deity? These were the real-life challenges for the people as they entered into a whole new land. There's a prohibition regarding idols or graven images. And it's not so much about being fooled that a statue of stone or wood could have special spiritual powers, because even the ancients understood that the idol simply represented the god. There was a a god and then the idol was kind of like the representation of that god. But our god says, no, you're not to have one of those The prohibition is really about the fact that there is no graven image that could adequately represent our God and there already exists an image of our God. And you know who that is, don't you? Look at the person next to you and the other people and yourself in the mirror. We are the image of God. We are the image of God. The only thing in creation that can adequately adequately express who our God is It's other people. It's quite a remarkable thing. And this subverts destructive rivalry as well, offering instead the potential of a profoundly positive rivalry, if you like. We are the image bearers of a God who is very different to all the other gods. If you want to compete and be a rival, compete to be more like God. Okay, so that means outdo one another to be more loving. That'd be a good competition, wouldn't it? Yeah. Try to be more self-giving than everybody else you know. Be more forgiving. Be the one who is more marked by grace in all your interactions. 
Be the one who brings about more healing and wholeness to your circle of friends and colleagues. By all means, be a rival in that competition. Be more in the image of God than anyone else. The remainder of these commandments are designed to diffuse hostility before it erupts in the group, if you like. After warning the people not to make light of who God is, don't take God's name in vain, and to respect the traditions, to honour your father and your mother, and the guidance away from endless acquisition, and they've just been delivered from slavery, so why become a slave again to work? Make sure you step out of that and don't work all the time. We need to hear that again today, don't we? We easily become slaves of our own making. And there's this series of well-targeted prohibitions that most of us take for granted. Don't take another's life. Don't take or don't sleep with someone else's partner. Don't take other people's stuff. Don't take liberties with the truth. And don't take your neighbour as the model of all who you should be and all that you should have. The depths of this wisdom, of these guiding principles, is so ground-shifting that it has provided a firm foundation upon which life has prospered for millennia. It really is quite a thing. There's the analogy of eating the carcass of a whale from the inside, that these things have uh, provided so much nourishment for us and we've lived on that nourishment for such a long time, but we're starting to get to the outer edge and maybe we've eaten all the nourishment and we're unaware where that nourishment comes from and we're slightly kind of drifting away from these principles as if any other set of principles might be adequately as good or something like that. It's quite a remarkable thing. But law has its limits, of course, The primary role of law is to hold back particular behaviour that we fear might be harmful to our society together. In a primary way, law is about limiting. It's about holding back. It's about putting appropriate boundaries around certain behaviours. In due course, the prophets would come to challenge the way law was being used because the law became something that people performed as a kind of performance act to make themselves look like they were righteous. The letter of the law was being manipulated for a very different intent. And rather than appearances uh, to to appear obedient to the letter of the law, the prophets maintained that God was interested in people doing good because they wanted to do the good, to do the good things. That's what the law was really about. St. Paul points out uh, some generations later that law itself is powerless to make people want to do good. In fact, it's more likely to have the opposite effect in some ways. It piques our interest in seeing what's on the other side of the prohibition. He says in Romans 7, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. I didn't even know about coveting until the law said don't covet and I went, ooh, coveting. (laughs) When it comes to wanting to do good, when it comes to learning to love more, there really is only one person who can help you and you won't be surprised if I tell you that it's Jesus, right? But Let me tell you how that works in using a story from his own words. When Jesus went to visit Simon, who was a Pharisee, and 
they were in the open courtyard and they were visited by a prostitute who came and wept at Jesus' feet. And uh, Simon was clearly perturbed by this. And Jesus answered Simon, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to pay, he graciously forgave them both. So which one will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning to the woman, you've got to love the little bits of body language that we get in the text. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. And for this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. That's in Luke chapter 7 if you want to look it up. And herein is a beautiful mystery. You can tell the forgiven by the grace they show to others. And the only way I know to increase one's capacity to love is to appreciate more profoundly the extent to which we are loved. I well remember one of the most challenging passages of my life, not long after we became the parent of two parents of two children in our family, and the girls were not good sleepers, so we rarely got more than an hour or so of uninterrupted sleep, and both Joe and I became exhausted. I've told you this story, well, that part of the story many times, I'm sure. And I was confronted by a hitherto unknown rage that would sporadically emerge from within me and not only frightened my girls, but it terrified me. I'd never known myself to be an angry person. It came up in such a strong way, in an uncontrolled way, that I feared that I might be going insane, that I was becoming unhinged. I felt not only like a failure, but I also felt like a potential danger to my little family. And I well remember one evening when after one of these things happened, and fortunately I never did do any physical harm, although I think they'll need counselling, my girls. Um, I remember sobbing with Joe and how, we, how relieved I was when she did not push me away. And I felt like I deserved to be pushed away. And she held me. And she let me know that she would help hold me together until I became strong enough to hold myself together. And this changed me at a deep, deep level in a way no amount of theory could ever have done. I became aware of something. I am broken and I am loved. And this reality is wonderfully liberating. It enlarges the heart. It increases compassion towards others. See, these Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 are revolutionary. 
They are groundbreaking stuff that has propelled the ongoing development of various societies for thousands and thousands of years. There simply is no good reason to walk away from them, in my opinion. And yet law does not have the power to transform the human heart. It, it does offer a safety barrier so that we don't destroy each other, but it cannot make us love one another. Knowing the depths of our forgiveness in Christ does change the human heart. When we know that grace and forgiveness profoundly, it floods our heart with gratitude and empowers us to extend grace to others around us. In short, it makes us more human, and that's a good thing. Let us pray. Lord, for your incredible grace to us that helps us come in touch with the reality of who we are and who others are and how to make the world a better place. We give you thanks that you don't reject us when we fall short. You call us on that we might live better to the glory of your name. Amen.